Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we're turning once again to the Gospel of Mark, and today we have arrived at chapter 8. So I invite you to open your Bibles and read along with me. Now as you're turning there, let me give you just a, a brief preview of what's ahead. As some of you may know, the book of Mark is largely divided into two halves. The first half is really focused on the question of who is Jesus, and we will come to the climax of that focus next week with Peter's confession of who Jesus is. The second half of Mark then will shift focus to what has Jesus come to do. And my plan is to finish the first half of Mark next week, and then as we move into October, I'm going to take a, a break from Mark to do a topical series on worship and biblical worship, and then we'll return to the second half of Mark after that. But this morning we dive into Mark 8. Now just as a reminder, if you've been tracking with us, Jesus has just completed a Gentile tour, if you will, going up through Tyre and across to Sidon and down to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And as chapter 8 opens, uh, all signs indicate that Jesus is still there in that region of the Decapolis, that heavily Gentile region, teaching the crowds that have followed him. Now let's jump in and read together Mark 8, verses 1 to 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they sent them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that they should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears, do you not see? Sorry, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Father, this is your word that you have given us. Would we live this morning not by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I started down the path of sharing my movie preferences with you, and so I might as well add to that picture. In addition to Batman and Marvel superhero movies, I'm also quite partial to Pixar films. And yes, I do realize that the target audience was about one-fourth of my age, But I believe that the Pixar movies, especially from the early 2000s, are cinematic masterpieces. And one of my personal favorites is Ratatouille. Now, for those of you who have not experienced the brilliance of Ratatouille, this movie is about Remy the Rat, a rat who has a refined culinary instinct. He will only eat the finest meats and cheeses, only seasoned with the best herbs and spices. But of course, his gifts are completely lost on the rest of the rat community, who just indulge on whatever trash is put before them. And all of Remy's efforts to try to teach his brothers and sisters and cousins to test their food and love what is good and hate what is rotten are to no avail. Well, today we come to a passage about testing your bread In fact, these are three short episodes that are all tied together by the theme of bread. They function in some ways like a three-act play, culminating in Jesus' warning to the disciples to beware of bad bread. But distracted by the practical and the pressing, the disciples are more like Remy's siblings and cousins, focused on getting their fill of physical bread rather than on testing and discerning the bread that satisfies from the yeast that corrupts. And that discernment is the main point of this three-act play. So without further ado, let's begin by looking at Act 1, verses 1 through 10, and see the bread that satisfies. Now, if you found yourself thinking that these verses sounded awfully familiar to you, you're not alone. Because if you've been working through Mark with us, we just saw the feeding of the 5,000 a couple of chapters ago, and They're very similar. Both happen in deserted places. Both say that Jesus was driven by his compassion for the crowds. Both involve Jesus asking his disciples what food is available. Bread and fish is the answer in both. Jesus prays to bless both and then gives them to disciples to distribute them. And the miraculous food leads to baskets full of leftovers in both. And so it probably shouldn't surprise us to learn that some have asked, well, Is this really two different events, or might this be two different descriptions of the same event? And that hypothesis is seemingly strengthened by the reaction of the disciples. Because here in chapter 8, you see in verse 4 that the disciples seem just as bewildered by Jesus' suggestion of feeding the crowds as they were two chapters ago. And so the question is raised, if Jesus had just miraculously multiplied bread two chapters ago, Wouldn't the disciples say, well, that's a great point, Jesus. Why don't you do the whole multiplying bread thing again? But they seem completely at a loss. 
However, for all of these similarities, the differences in these stories are actually more notable. Jesus initiates the question about food here, whereas the disciples did in chapter 6. There were five loaves then and seven loaves now. There were two fish before and a few small fish here, totally different kinds of fish, according to the Greek. Before, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. Here, there are 4,000 people total. Then there were 12 baskets taken up. Here, there are seven baskets taken up. And so the evidence clearly points to two different events. And if we're wondering about the disciples' reaction... We have to remember that these events didn't take place back to back like they do in our gospel. There were likely months of normal, non-miraculous eating that took place in between these two, in addition to the hundreds of miles of journeying that happened. And we would have to add that the disciples have not proved overly adept so far at anticipating Jesus' person and miraculous work. And of course, to settle the matter once and for all, Jesus, in verses 19 and 20, refers to both events as separate events. And so as we come to our passage here, despite the questions of some, it's clear that these are two different events. That in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had broken bread for a large crowd of Jewish people. As the prophet like Moses, who was to come, who fed his people bread from heaven. While here in Mark 8, Jesus caps off his Gentile tour there in the Decapolis among the Gentiles by offering them the bread of life as well. Now again, this event is sparked by Jesus' compassion for the crowd. His love for them is stirred. You remember in chapter 6, he looked out at the people and said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, here in Mark 8, these people are hungry as well following Jesus desperate for a savior for what he has to offer. And it's worth noting that this crowd didn't just gather around Jesus like people who see something interesting and and come to see what's happening. No, this is a crowd who has come to Jesus specifically. Jesus says they have been with me now for three days, following him even to the desolate place. Now they're physically fainting and Jesus wants to show them that he is the bread of life. Once again, the disciples are distracted by the practical questions of the hour. Jesus, how could we possibly find food for 4,000 out here? You know, the disciples are often the ones tasked with carrying out Jesus' commands. He sends them out two by two and they go. He sends them into town to buy food and they do. He sends them to find a place to prepare the Passover and they do. So maybe the disciples are assuming Jesus wants us to go get food for all these people and how could we possibly do that? But once again, Jesus is here to demonstrate who he is. He offers this crowd a miraculous meal feeding them as a physical sign that he is the food that they need, that they too might not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Son of God. When I read this story, I can almost hear Jesus quoting Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. You remember those words? You can hear Jesus inviting them, stop spending your money for that which is not bread. Stop laboring for that which does not satisfy, but listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul might live. 
Because the bread that satisfies is found in listening to Jesus. These people have found it in coming to Him, and the bread that He feeds them is a sign that points to Himself as the one who will satisfy their souls with good. Now, I think Isaiah is actually an important passage to think about. That invitation was extended to Israel specifically in Isaiah 55, but immediately after in Isaiah 56, the Lord had said this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to be his servants, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And just as Jesus has extended the bread of life to the Jews in chapter 6, so he caps off that Gentile tour, offering this bread to yet others who will be gathered to him and brought to him if they will join themselves to the Lord in faith. And so here in Act 1 of this three-act play, the offer of bread that satisfies is extended to these 4,000 from the Decapolis. But now let's move on to Act 2, which is found in verses 11 to 13. Here we find that there is also bad bread, bread full of yeast that corrupts. After feeding the 4,000, Jesus got in a boat and moved back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, the region of Dalmanutha. Now, we don't have an exact timeline here, but at some point, the Pharisees realize Jesus is back. Now, remember what happened last time Jesus was there. Jesus had broken the traditions of the elders, accused the Pharisees of defiling themselves with sin and of breaking the commandments of God. And so the Pharisees are ready when he's back to confront him and to demand from him a sign from heaven to justify himself. Now, on the one hand, it certainly seems a bit unusual, doesn't it, that the Pharisees want a sign from Jesus? Hasn't he been doing signs for eight chapters in Mark here? Haven't the Pharisees seen paralyzed men walk? Haven't they seen demons cast out? Haven't they seen dead children raised to life? So why is it that they want a sign? What more could they ask for? But remember that miracles can be done by good power from God or also from evil power. And the Pharisees have already decided in Mark chapter 3 that all Jesus' miracles are done by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So the Pharisees have already discounted the significance of all of Jesus' miracles. What they want is a sign from heaven, a dramatic heavenly event that will serve as definitive proof from God that Jesus is from him. And they clearly are suggesting that apart from such a dramatic heavenly sign, nothing Jesus does will be enough evidence to believe in him. Now this sounds rather familiar, I think, because it has always been the case that the mind that is set against God will always say that there is not enough evidence You might remember the famous example of Bertrand Russell, that famous atheist at the beginning of the 20th century. He was asked one day, he said, Bertrand, what will you say if you die and come to heaven and find out there's a God and are facing him 
right in front of you. And Bertrand Russell paused for a second, and then he, would say, he said, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And it is always the case that when our minds are set against him, we are demanding that he give us a more dramatic proof of him if he is actually real. But of course, the reality is there is no evidence that could be enough to change our minds because the issue is not with our minds in the first place. It is with our hearts, with the yeast that is baked into our thinking, which immediately explains away all the evidence that God has given. I wonder whether there might be someone here this morning who struggles to believe that God exists or that Jesus is his son or to trust what the Bible says. And if you find yourself in that place this morning, I wonder if I could encourage you to consider that the issue might not be one of evidence. It might not be one of logic or facts. It might be one of your heart, of what you desire, and of your starting assumptions. And if you find yourself in that place, can I invite you to consider examining those starting assumptions, those desires of your heart first? Because that is the crux of the issue. And that's why Jesus responds here with, you see, you see it in verse 12, with a deep sigh in his spirit. It's a groan of dismay at the level of hard-hearted unbelief in the Pharisees. Jesus has shown them sign after sign after sign, evidence after evidence. He has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and promise after another to demonstrate who he is. And Jesus' point is, if you will not recognize the character of God and the promises of God fulfilled in me, you will have to remain in your unbelief because no other sign will be given. No other sign could be given to convince you of who I am. After all, God does not plan to overpower doubters with thunderbolts from heaven. He plans to hold out salvation through his son to those who know their need and will come to him in repentance and faith. Interestingly, I think it's worth adding a quick note that in Matthew's account, as well as in Luke, Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale three days and then was spit out, a clear reference to the resurrection. In other words, while God will not give this dramatic sign the Pharisees want, he will give a definitive proof that Jesus is the Son of God and has come from him. And he will give that proof by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the definitive proof that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who was sent. In fact, you might think to Acts chapter 17, you remember when Paul is there in Athens addressing the men of Athens. What does he say there? He says, God is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all, proof to all by raising him from the dead. See, in the resurrection, God gave a sign from heaven that Jesus is the Lord. But of course, if the crux of the issue is not evidence, but with our hearts of hard-hearted unbelief, then even that sign will not be enough, as the Pharisees demonstrate in just a few chapters. 
So act one, Jesus offers himself as the bread of life who satisfies our hunger. In act two, we see the result of the yeast of unbelief in the minds of the Pharisees who discount all the evidence. But that leads then to act three in verses 14 to 21, where Jesus summons the disciples to discern their bread. After the conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples crossed back to the eastern side of Galilee again. I want you to just put yourself maybe in that boat for a minute. These disciples have crossed back and forth, and so here they are rowing back across the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us they'd pretty much reached the other side when one of them broaches the topic of dinner. And all of a sudden, they realize they forgot to bring bread. Now, if you've ever been at work, you're working away through the morning, and you get that first twinge of hunger, usually for me it's around like 10, 15, and you start thinking about lunch, and all of a sudden it hits you, I forgot my lunch at home on the counter. And there is nothing worse than staring the rest of the day knowing you forgot your lunch. Now, I went through a period of time where I actually forgot my lunch constantly. I don't know what it was, but it was multiple times a week I was leaving my lunch on the counter. And so one day my wife came home from the store and she brought several of those plastic microwavable cans of Campbell's soup. You know, the ones, they're just a step above ramen noodles. They have like 7,000% of your daily sodium. (laughs) And my wife said to me, she said, I want you to take these and put them on your shelf. And she said, they're going to help you in two ways. First, next time you forget your lunch, you're going to have something to eat. And second, the thought of having to eat this might keep you from forgetting your lunch. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it worked. I stopped forgetting my lunch. But unfortunately for the disciples, their wives hadn't gotten to this point yet. And so here they are, stuck in the boat with nothing but one leftover loaf to split 13 ways. So while they're all worried about their dinner, Jesus is still thinking about his conversation with the Pharisees. And so he takes the opportunity to warn the disciples, to watch out, to beware. You notice in the text, verse 15, he repeats the warning twice. Watch out, be on the lookout, beware, discern with an awareness of danger the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, ever distracted by the practical and the pressing, the disciples think Jesus must be talking about their lack of food, so they just start discussing it. Well, maybe Jesus doesn't want us to ask the Pharisees for bread, or maybe he, he's saying we should have gotten bread before we talked to the Pharisees, or maybe he's just criticizing us for not having dinner on board. I mean, it was our job, and on and on goes their discussion. But Jesus interrupts them. He says, why are you talking about the fact that you have no bread? Do you remember the 5,000 people and how many fragments and baskets full you picked up? Do you remember the 4,000 and the seven baskets full? Do you think, disciples, that not having enough bread is a problem for me? Do your eyes still not see? Do you not understand? And then Matthew tells us, finally, at that point, they realized he was talking about the teaching of those who opposed him. Now, most likely when Matthew says that Jesus was referring to the teaching of the Pharisees or of Herod or the Sadducees, it was not specific doctrines or specific rules that they were talking about, but the fact that their teaching and their opposition was rooted in unbelief. And their approach to Jesus, their response to Jesus was driven by their lack of faith. That was the key. 
But the irony is that the disciples' discussion about their food shortage showed a similar lack of faith in Jesus. In fact, in Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that Jesus' first response to the disciples' discussion about not having bread was, Oh, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? In other words, the disciples too have little faith. They've missed who Jesus is and what he is trying to tell them. And Jesus' concern is that if there is even a dash of the yeast of unbelief, it can spread through the whole loaf. And so Jesus says, watch out, beware of this leaven. And that's the challenge. That's the climax of this three-act play. Will the disciples understand that Jesus multiplied bread was a sign, an invitation to come to him and live. And in faith in him, they have all the food that they need, life for their souls. Will their faith enable them to trust him no matter what the circumstances? Or will that yeast of unbelief, of eyes that do not see, keep rearing its head in situation after situation so that the disciples also will need this warning. That's the question of this story. But we're not here for literary analysis on a three-act play. We're here to read and apply God's word. So what is the application for us? How do we apply this warning to our own hearts? Well, in two ways, I think. First, the example of the disciples reminds us that while Jesus stands full of compassion, offering to us the bread that satisfies We are so often distracted by the practical and the pressing. I mean, just ask yourself some diagnostic questions. How often are we so busy with getting breakfast, packing the lunches, driving to sporting events, arranging our schedules, panicking over how we're going to get everything done, that we're completely caught off guard when Jesus addresses our hearts and tells us to stop talking about all of those details And focus on whether we understand who he is and trust him right now. How often are we so focused on the problems of the moment? How sick I am right now. How tired I feel this morning. How short on money we are today. How I have no idea what to do to help my adult children or my grandchildren. How my kids seem to be spiraling in drama or worldliness this week. That we lose sight of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness in the press of what's happening. How easily do anxiety and disappointment and frustration, that, that Sisyphean sense of here we go again, how often does that control our attitudes and response? So can't we sympathize with the disciples, these 12 as they work themselves up in the discussions of where are we going to get bread and what are we going to do? We forgot dinner. Because the practical and the pressing steal our attention while Jesus is sitting there all along as the Son of God who offers bread from his heart of compassion that he might satisfy his people through every word of God. Through the one who is our source of rest and provision, through the one who's even given his body and blood broken and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. This is Jesus And Jesus asks us too, do you remember how many I fed from five loaves of bread? Do you remember what happened when I spoke to the storm? Do you trust me? Do you remember who I am? 
If so, stop letting the practical and the pressing consume you. Feed on me in faith and you will find food and rest for your souls. That's the first application. And then finally, I think we have to realize that the main point of this story, this narrative, is Jesus' call to watch out and to beware. For us to realize that we need to be alert and on guard against unbelief. Just think how many times in our lives we hit up against something and respond in a way that fails to show trust in the sovereign goodness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. How many times do we face circumstances that cause us to panic, to doubt, that leave us more in the position of the disciples than firm in our faith? One writer notes that the disciples here are anxious about their lack of bread. But Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith, which leads them to be anxious about their lack of bread. And what is more, they don't even seem to be aware of the root of the problem. But this is something that God repeats again and again through the New Testament. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. You hear those same words of warning? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How do we respond? Resist him firm in your faith. It's the firm faith in Jesus Christ that is our bulwark against these temptations that would draw us off. And we are called to be watchful. Hebrews 3 verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The author of Hebrews called the church to watch out because there was reason to think that there could be in some an unbelieving heart that would lead us to fall away from God. So the repeated theme is this warning over a heart of unbelief that would lead us to slip into not trusting him and who he is, which would open an opportunity for the devil and might lead us to fall away from him. So if I could return to Ratatouille for a moment, could I encourage and challenge each of us to pray for a Remy-like sense of spiritual discernment, that we would have sharpened tastes that would be able to sniff out even the slightest yeast of unbelief, Yeast that would not see who Jesus for what he is. Yeast that would not be firm in our trust in him regardless of the circumstances. Yeast that would demand God prove himself by meeting our desires or solving our problems or letting us live by our standards. That is the challenge for us this morning. And how do we develop that Remy-like discernment? By being with Jesus day after day like these crowds by living off every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Son of God, by cultivating faith that comes from being with Him as the bread that satisfies, believing every command that He gives and every promise He makes. And so this is my encouragement to you. May we watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. May we pray for God's Spirit to sharpen our discernment. May we pray for the mind of Christ to dwell in us, for the word of Christ to live in us, for the peace and the love of God to fill us, that we might be full of the bread that satisfies 
even unto everlasting life for our souls. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Jesus Christ, that bread from heaven. How we thank you for the reminder that we don't live on physical bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And how we thank you for your Son that brings that word to us. Father, would you, by your Spirit, sharpen our discernment? Would we be on guard against every little hint of situation or philosophy that would pull us from faith in Christ? Would we be diligent to watch our hearts lest any bit of yeast, of unbelief, of lack of trust in you and in your word lead us to fall away? Father, fill us with the mind of Christ and the word of Christ that we might feast on you and stand in you even as we wait for your return. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.